So 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll start here at verse 1 for context, and then we'll go from there. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, Give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we turn to your word, and we just sung that last song that we so plead for the Spirit, that words would come alive in us, that the world would see Christ in us, We pray, Lord, that the proclamation of your word would land on soil well prepared. Lord, I pray that there would be no stony hearts here. Lord, that the devil would not snatch it away. Lord, that the cares of the world would not choke it. Oh God, we pray that it would land in rich soil and bring forth fruit. For therein thou art glorified, and I pray that we would seek to honor you in every breath we have. Give me wisdom to bring your word faithfully, and Lord, give us discernment to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, this morning we will be dealing with verses 8 and 9, and uh, there was enough there that I thought we'll save verse uh, 10 and 11, because they get into some pretty thick sledding there. So 8 and 9 this morning, I have three points to bring forward. Present virtues, productive virtues, and telling virtues. So present virtues, productive virtues, and telling virtues. And obviously the virtues that are being referred to are those that are mentioned in verses 5 through 7 that we dealt with last time. But we have to remember where we've been because it so sets the stage of where we're going. And so remember, by way of summary, verse 1 talks about faith being a gift. It is obtained by God's divine choice. It's not something that we chose to have faith, right? That would be kind of strange. No, it is God that has given and secured that by the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 2 gave us the greeting, very common. And at the same time, we saw that in the greeting, there's a call for an ever-increasing multiplication of the grace of God in, and here comes the peculiar word that keeps coming back in Peter, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about that word knowledge, epigenosin, being distinct from regular knowledge, gnosis. And so epigenosis is peculiar grasping, 
apprehending, embracing of what you know. It's not just here. It moves here. So it's so important because that word keeps coming back. The Apostle Paul is also very much likes using that word in Colossians. Verses 3 and 4. We saw that it is divine power. So it's from above that it secures for us the ability to live and to be productive, as you see in that verse when it says all things to life and godliness. And godliness is what verses 5 to 7 is all about, the fruit. And then verses five to, uh, 3 to 4 also talks sorry, about the nature, where the end is, what the goal is, that we become more like God that we are conformed to thinking his thoughts after him, living like he is. And so that's, that's front-loading these practical verses 5 through 7, where it talks about now our call to diligently add to our faith, to furnish our lives, as it were, with all these virtues. And I'm going to keep calling them, them virtues. So verse 8 opens up with the word for, and any time you see that, you have to ask yourself, okay, what is that there for? And four is there to explain, to further buttress or to, to, to flesh out the reason why our growth is so vital. And so in the verses that follow, verse 8, 9, and 10, we will see the relationship between Christian growth and the doctrines of apostasy, election, perseverance, and eternity. And those are all going to be explanations why we must be growing. And I've been so convicted as I've been working through this study that, oh, we're so quickly apathetic to putting on virtues. We're so quickly moved to cruise control. And um, I just pray that as we work through these verses, it will inspire us and give us uh, a real desire to grow. And so he says, for if these things be in you, and the word there to be is not a common word in the Greek. Um, it means if they are truly and continually abiding in you, if these virtues reside in you, if they are like second nature to you, then this, then all these things will happen. What this reminds us is that there was a time when these virtues were not in us. There was a time when we didn't care. We were living for ourselves. And he's saying here, the more present they become, the more they furnish your house, your temple, as it were, the more active you can use them to bear more fruit to God's glory. And then he not only says if they're there, right, as if they are in the temple, in, in, in your body, these virtues, but he says, but and also abound. That means they're flourishing. They are accessible and they're moving on. It's not just about inward renovation. This is all about outward results. So that when you have challenges, as you may have had yesterday with this hailstorm, or as opportunities confront you to help somebody, or as temptations confront you in all these things, be like an eager apprentice who every day characterizes his life under the masters, under his tutelage, to be a steady, a humble, and a diligent, and a teachable servant in the ways of God. One commentator said this. He says, The Christian does not abound in sin, but enjoys the abounding grace of God, and should therefore abound in moral character. 
Is that us? Is that us? Are we growing in character? Is the declaration of war on sins evident in our lives? Is that clear to others? This man hates his sin. This woman is at war with the vices that so easily beset. Do the skirmishes within show signs of battles won and waged and, and warfare engaged? Are there flowers germinating in your life where once there was thistles that overgrew the garden? Are you busy and active in your holiness? That is what Peter calls us to, intentional war. And that leads me to the second point, which is productive virtues. Because he says here, they make you that ye shall be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word there to make means to establish you. So first he says, are they present at your command? And now they establish you. They make you firm. They put you in the position. They're like well-developed roots in a plant or large leaves on a plant that are set up to bear fruit. Right? They soak in the sun and they soak up the rains. But if they're not there, you'll have a miserable plant that will soon wither and die. This uh, spring we tried number two, putting a, uh, an evergreen tree, moving it to an area close to our gas line. And this is the second time it died. No good roots, terrible soil, it died again. And so Paul calls us, or sorry, Peter calls us, that we don't have that, that we're set up for success, that we're established. You know, virtues, virtues are like the ready tools of a carpenter. Can you imagine engaging in a building project, maybe a small one, maybe a large one, without the tools at hand? You drive to the site and you open your, your, the, your trunk of your truck and there's nothing in there. There's no, no tools, no virtues in this case. And um, unlike you or I, who may have tools in our workshops that we never use, virtues aren't like that. They're the tools that are always ready at hand, always useful in building the holy temple of God in your life. They always benefit you. Now, if you look at this text, what's, uh, what's really interesting is Peter states this entire productivity in the negative, how he says, they will make you that ye shall be neither that you will neither be barren nor unfruitful. Those are negatives, right? And he's saying, hey, virtues will take care of that. They will, they will go against that. And that's interesting. And I think that's because our gravity, our natural state is barrenness, unfruitfulness. Sin did that to us. So without renovation, that's what we get. And so barrenness, this is an interesting word because... Barrenness and unfruitfulness at the beginning might just seem like the same thing, saying it twice. Well, if you're barren, you're unfruitful. But the Greek word here to be barren is most often translated idle. Idle. It's only used eight times in the New Testament, and it means to be at your leisure, and therefore barren. Refusing or neglecting the labor that you ought to do, and thus you're simply idle. The same word was used by the Lord Jesus when he had a parable and he talked about those who were idle in the marketplace and they did nothing. It's so easy, isn't it, to become spiritually idle, lethargic. How easy it isn't to, to become lazy in reading scripture, spending time with God, assembling with the saints. 
intentionally asking one another in love, how are you doing spiritually? Do we ask those questions? Are we cultivating in our lives a higher view of God? Because one of those things, one of the virtues, godliness, gaze upon God. Well, to gaze upon him, to meditate upon him. Don't be lazy in that, right? And so virtues help us and get rid of our lethargy. And uh, the next one here, unfruitfulness. Now, we know fruitfulness in the Bible is often used as a metaphor for productivity, for obedience. And in Isaiah 5, God compares his covenant people, Israel, to a vineyard, a precious vineyard. He says he protects it. He nurtures it. He cultivates it. And then what does he say in Isaiah 5? He says, but it only brought forth wild grapes. And so he says, I will leave this vineyard and it will become desolate. Now, I believe that Peter, knowing his Old Testament so well, knows exactly what unfruitfulness does because he's one of the Israelites and he saw the exile. He heard about it. Sorry. John the Baptist says a similar thing about fruit bearing. He says to wicked Israel after they've come back from Babylon, he says this. And now the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down, it's cut down, and cast into the fire. So John, baptizing, is starting a new exodus. And there's people that come to him, and he warns them that if you're serious, you better be bearing fruit in your life. It's not an option. Jesus says, by your fruits you shall know the tree. You know, when we uh, walked around this spring, and maybe you do that too, you just marvel at the beauty of the flowering trees and the flowers on the different things you put in your garden, the plants. And we marvel at them because we know that with the flowers, they are telltale signs that fruit is coming, right? Now, there's some uh, trees in our garden that uh, have toxic berries, They're not the kind you want. You want good fruit, as Jesus says. And yet at the same time, there's some delicious fruit that comes from the right trees. And so Jesus' warning is so fitting. To get the right fruit, you need to be cultivating inside virtues. You know that parable of the vineyard that I was talking about in Isaiah 5? God later again picks up this vineyard business in chapter 27. And he says... In redemption, in his new covenant promises, he says, In that day, sing to Israel. He says, A vineyard, speaking again of a vineyard, he says, A vineyard of red wine, I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. And so God is promising for his covenant people, his new covenant people, that he will nurture this vineyard so that what? Verse 6 tells us of Isaiah 27. He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud, just like the trees in the spring, and fill the face of the whole world with fruit. You know, that's so blessed. As God is our rich supply, as his spirit is working within us, there will be buds and there will be fruit to the blessing of the nations. And so Jesus' commission to the nation, go into all the world, comes because 
fruit is being born inside of us by the Holy Spirit. And what a blessing that is. What a blessing it is. And therefore, all of this is, as you look in your text, anchored again in epignosis. You see that? The end of this verse. That you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge, same Greek word, epignosis, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Real faith in him. This is where it gets really interesting, I found, in the text. Because epignosis gets used three times up till now, including now. And three times we get different prepositions being used. That's striking. What's he doing here? And I think this is pretty cool. Peter doesn't throw away words here at all. The first time was in verse 2, right? If you just flip to verse 2, and it talks about grace and peace multiplied unto you through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. That word, the preposition there is en, which means in, in the sphere of Christ. So within that sphere of knowing him, grace and peace is multiplied. So keep that one in mind, sphere. Verse 3 you get it again, right? Where it says he has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him. The Greek word there is dia. Dia through is the means. So we've had the sphere of growing is Christ. The means, the vehicle of growth is Christ. So you have to be in him. You have to be dependent upon him. And the verse, uh, the next verse that we're talking about this morning, verse 8, has a different preposition again. And the word in, in our version there, is ace, which means unto. So within the sphere, through the means of, and unto. And unto is a purpose word. Right? And this is really interesting. So what does this mean? What, what are these nuances all about? I don't think Peter's just trying different prepositions here. I agree with the commentators who say that what he's doing here is that the goal of fruit bearing unto is to know Christ more. That the epignosis that we began with will be cultivated as we know him through him. And will, the goal will be further knowledge of Christ, further growth in him. That means that the more you cultivate character in your life, depending on Christ, meditating on the gospel, trusting him, the more you will know him. Now, is this taught anywhere else in scripture? This idea of beginning knowledge, sphere, immediate knowledge, means, and goal knowledge. Is there any other scriptures that bring this up? Yes, Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, please, and you'll see it there as well. Paul does the identical thing. Colossians 1. This is Paul's prayer. I'll start here in verse 9. Preached through this 15 years ago, so uh, it's been a while, but I remember vividly the same words coming up. Verse 9, Colossians 1. For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. There's the first one. In all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy. There's your fruit. There's your virtues of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful. Well, we saw that in Peter, right? Fruitfulness in every good work and increasing in what? The knowledge of God. You see that? The same thing. Increasing in the knowledge of God by means 
of bearing fruit. That's staggering. It's kind of like this. You plant a tree. The tree grows. It buds. It flowers. And what do you do with the fruit? You enjoy the fruit thereof. And that's what God does. The means of trusting him, depending upon him, will nurture further faith in us. That's vital. This is so vital. I hope we don't miss the point of this. This means we need to be questioning in our lives why there are such times of spiritual coldness, lethargy. Why are there maybe times when we're like, man, I I look at my last few months and I've just been listless. I haven't been growing. Is it because you are not bearing fruit in dependence on Jesus Christ? Is it because you're not intentional in your faith? You're not furnishing your life with virtues. You're getting lazy. We're getting lethargic in our holiness. We are so dependent upon Christ. Now, this is also interesting because remember how Romans 12 ends with God in sovereign election says from him and to him and through him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. This is a similar pattern because what this teaches us that Christ from him in the sphere of Christ and by means through him and unto him to knowing him more is all of him everything is from him and it's it's reflecting romans 12 in christ everything is from through and to christ jesus and this leads us to i would think the first and most sobering part of this epistle and that is the last point here telling virtues but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off notice in the text the shift in verse 8 If these things be in you, they make you, the ye, all plurals, second person plurals. He's talking to his readers. Notice in verse 9, it shifts to third person singular, he, he that doeth these things. What that means is that Peter is not saying that his readers have already embraced lawlessness, but it is rather a strong warning against the one who might embrace it this is what happens to this individual so the shift is the warning is to us okay but remember this the one of us who who does this who embraces lawlessness he or she will this and just so remember what's going on and it's another explanatory right but or for same greek word as in verse eight for he that lacketh these things So he's going to deepen this out if you're missing this. Now, the word to lack is interesting because remember how I said the word to be, the idea of them being present, ready at hand, ready to use. This is the opposite. Lacking something is not being ready at hand. It's like going to the building site, opening the truck. It's not there. It's not ready at hand. What's interesting, though, is if you look, if you're reading from the King James here, it says lacketh. Anytime you see an oath, remember it's a present tense. Present tense is a continual tense. Habitually lacking. Habitually lacking. That means every time you go to the building site, every time. Oh, I forgot the tools. Every time. That's the point. It's not about having a bad day here or there. The point is your life is habitually fruitless. You, you are not cultivating anything. You go to the garden and it's dead. It's already June and there's only weeds. There was no hoeing. There was no watering. There's nothing.
This idea of lacking is such a sad and sorry state of much of modern Christianity. The other day I spoke with an individual who is really become eager to read the word and to study the word and he said to me it was the hypocritical Christianity the fact that they went to church and lived absolutely in contrary ways turned him off for years from having any interest in the things of God you see our fruit magnifies or it adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ but when we bring forth briars and thistles we squelch, we crush the word of God and our witness. And so the Apostle Peter says that such a one is blind. Now this is a very sobering statement because some people might take the text and say, well, you know, he's becoming blind. No, 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 this, this word is not partial. It describes full-out darkness, spiritual darkness with respect to spiritual and heavenly things, blind People are disinterested in the things of God and holy living. The Apostle John says similar things in 1 John 2.11. He says, but he that hateth his brother. What was the last virtue we looked at? Charity, love. The one before that? Philadelphia, brotherly love. No interest. He has none of that. Walks in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth. Because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. John pulls out practical virtues to demonstrate internal realities. But you know what? Blind people think they see. We live in a church culture that can look very pious. Some people can be oh so good at reciting scripture showing up on Sunday mornings for church, avoiding the big cultural sins. Oh, I don't do any of that. I'm not like them. In fact, I will speak out at rallies against those things. But when it comes to the actual knowledge of God, they see absolutely nothing. And so Peter here Picking up on that, says they're blind and cannot see afar off. This is an interesting word. Muopazo. What do you hear in that? Myopia. Nearsightedness. I'm nearsighted. You guys are fuzzy to me right now. I have to squint, right? So you grope. Cannot see afar off. I'm myopic. But the interesting thing is this Greek word myopia is much more than just being nearsighted, something that can be corrected with glasses or spiritual glasses, as it were. This describes in those days a disease, a disease that would eventually and incurably close your eyes. It's much more serious than our view of nearsightedness. And so the squinting associated with this is a person going blind, and groping ahead. You know what's interesting? When we are short-sighted to spiritual things, we are short-sighted and want only temporary praise, the praise of man, because that's what we see, that's what we experience, isn't it? Those who are close to us, oh, how I want to please man. Do you live for the praise of men? Do you long to be seen as great 
for your accomplishments in this world. Oh, look at what I've done. Look at my picture-perfect family. Look at how, how good I've become. Look at, look at my business. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my bank account. Look at my car. Look at my truck. Look at my dress. Jesus warned that they who love the praise of men more than the praise of God stand in judgment. This myopia shows itself also by seeing things in false proportions. When we become myopic, we start seeing things wrongly. Jesus warned of the Pharisees. He said, oh, you blind guides. He says, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Well, a gnat was an unclean animal. So he's like, yeah. The Pharisees say, you can't touch a gnat. But it's puny. It's minuscule. A camel. It's huge. It was the biggest animal they knew of. And they, they wouldn't even think about nothing about swallowing that huge beast. And so the question is, are we more passionate about nitpicking about things where there is Christian liberty than about keeping a clean conscience before God in sin? Because of our sin. Fruitless Christians once appeared to have open eyes to the realities of things ahead of them. It looked like they saw far and weren't just nearsighted. And the judgment of God was in front of them and they, they lived in the light of eternity. They stamped it on their foreheads. They realized judgment is coming. I am mortal. But Myopia causes one to have a present love affair with the things of the world. Are you consumed with your job? Are you consumed with your farm? Are you consumed with your status, with your stuff? And you don't really think every day about the eternal. Is that you? Is that me? Maybe this is describing not you, but a close friend. Maybe it's describing a family member who, who went to church for years and now has, has stiff-armed the eternal. They, they are showing signs of myopia. How far are we looking? Are we looking beyond the temporal? Maybe you're just looking at next month, planning for next month, maybe for next year. Oh, I will buy and sell and do such and so. And you know what James says, right? You fools, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. You don't even know if you're getting tomorrow. You don't even know if you're walking out of this place alive. But myopia blinds us. And so this last phrase here in our text, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Now I have to admit, that phrase had me going for a long time. A long time. I read commentaries all the way through, 15 or 20 of them. Relooked at the Greek and ran through them again. And I was like, what is going on here? What's Peter saying? I was confused. And here's the reasons why. Because this is describing now the way this blindness comes about, right? He's forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So I'll work through what I think it means. It's not clear in the English, but in the Greek, the word is paired with another word. And in our version, it doesn't get translated, but the word has forgotten. Okay? So there's two words here, hath forgotten and received. These two words put together betray something of an even more sinister side to this myopia and blindness. A dark side to this. There's a willful side to this short-sightedness. Because literally, I'll translate it like this. 
having received forgetfulness or having taken up forgetfulness. I took it up. I willingly, wantingly looked at what was close, the willful side of this myopia. You willfully forget that you have been what? Purged from your old sins. That's what he says. So what does that mean? Because here's where it gets kind of confusing. Now maybe you don't tick like my brain and you're like, I see this. So just humor me for a second here and I'll explain what I I was questioning. Because the phrase willfully forgotten past purification brings confusion. Here's why. Blindness and myopia describe apostates. Apostates, literally from apostasis, means those who fall away. Okay, so it's describing those who are not saved. The problem is that from verses 1 through 4, where we started, everything describes the assurance that the believer will persevere and not apostatize. Okay, so that creates a problem. And furthermore, this phrase seems to echo that sentiment by saying they were purified from their sins, their old sins. So I puzzled over this. I said, well, how is this possible? If past sins were forgiven, aren't future sins forgiven? If past sins were purified, why aren't future sins purified? I mean, we believe, as we read this morning in the London Baptist Confession, in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. They will be kept. All whom the Father has given me, I will keep, and none of them shall be able to be plucked out of my hand. If we are cleansed, purified... From our iniquity, doesn't the blood of Christ cover all of our sins, past, present, future? Isn't that the merits of Christ? So how do we understand apostasy, blindness, with people who are purified of their sins? You see the problem. Is Peter teaching that we can lose our salvation? No, he can't be. And so I puzzled, and I puzzled. And suddenly... I I was literally, I was praying. I said, Lord, just help me to see this. And all of a sudden, rereading and looking, lights went on. I'm like, oh, there it is. There it is. I had to literally take my angle and go from the other angle and see it. Okay, I know. I was myopic on this text. Okay, so here we go. Purification speaks of cleansing, right? We all know this. When we think of cleansing, we must, in our minds, go back to the ritual washings of the Old Testament. Because they are all about cleansing and setting yourself aside from filth, dirtiness, right? Everything of this earth, because you're going into the temple. You're going into the presence of God. And so you need to wash away filth. That's what it talks about. This whole idea of washings is really interesting. Because what's the New Testament correspondent to washings? Baptismos. Baptism. Baptism. In fact, four times in the New Testament, the word baptismos gets translated as washings. They are in Mark 7, verse 7 and verse 8, and in Hebrews 6, verse 2, and chapter 9, verse 10 of Hebrews as well. And clearly, in the New Testament, baptisms are washings. And so, I remember when we were teaching through baptism, we talk about how baptism corresponds to the priestly washings as they are sanctified, as they go into the priesthood and into the temple. So, keep that in mind. Baptism and purification. So, there's a link. There's another link. Baptism in the New Testament was done when? At conversion. At conversion. 
That's the other link we must draw. And I will prove this with a text here. An example text would be the Apostle Paul recounting his conversion to Christ. And he's in front of Ananias. Remember, he's blind. And Ananias says to him, this is in Acts 22, verse 6. And now, why tarriest thou? What are you waiting for? He says, arise. It's a conversion statement. All right, come. Stand up and be baptized. And wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And so what we see, and there's many more verses that could be brought up here, is that conversion, baptism, and the washing or the cleansing of sins are all to get together. Okay, so keep that in mind. And here in the text, it specifies old sins. That's another clue as to what this text might mean. So what's going on? These are the sins that refer to your time before you were converted, before you were baptized. So then the question again is, so okay, is, is Peter saying old sins, my pre-conversion sins are forgiven, washed, but not new ones? No. Like I said, new glasses. We need to see something. There is a spiritual reality to baptism. It signifies, and we know this from Romans 6, and we know this from other texts, it signifies spiritually that our hearts are being cleansed because we are united to Christ's death and resurrection. That is the spiritual side of baptism. The washing, the inward spiritual washing. In fact, listen to this text from Acts 15, verse 9, the Council of Jerusalem. It says this, And God which knoweth the hearts, that's inward, right? Heart is an inward thing. He bare them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost. What does the Spirit do? Circumcise hearts, the part you can't do. I can't do. Even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, between Jews and Gentiles. And then get this. Purifying their hearts by faith. It's interesting. Purifying, there's the same word, washing, cleansing their hearts by faith. The inward reality of baptism. But there's another side, and it was this side that answers the question of the text. The outward side of baptism. Because in the early church, conversion and baptism were more than a spiritual reality and a going into the water and coming out. There was something else that happens and was understood to have happened. Here it is. I'm going to list what baptism all was and understood to be. First of all, it is the embracing of the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus as our Savior. The faith that the gift of the Spirit is, resides, takes up residence within us, and unites us to Christ Jesus, sealing us, sanctifying. That was the spiritual side I talked about, okay? But the other side is this. Yielding to Christ's Lordship. That gets us to the term metanoia, repentance. Repentance is literally, I'm on this way, I'm turning the other way. My mind is having a thinking change. And that is what you do with your sins. When you embrace Christ as Lord, you are submitting to him actually. You are committing a lifestyle change. You are committing yourself to no longer be fruitless, to be, you'll no longer be barren. You are intentionally purging yourself or being purged from your old ways, your old sinful acts. 
There is a passage in Scripture that ties this all neatly together and talks about these dimensions and the one that is literally turning from sinful ways, whatever they may have been for you. They're going to be different for everybody. But listen to this. Actually, turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 links this all. First Corinthians chapter 6. He's, he's talking about problems where brother is going against brother in court. And he says that ought not to be done. So 1 Corinthians 6 verse 8. He says, nay, you do wrong and defraud and that's your brethren. He's in other words saying, this isn't a virtuous way to live. There's no fruit in this. Where's the brotherly love? Okay, so that's kind of like Peter talking about putting on virtues. Look at the next verse. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Now we're going to get practical sins. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. That's homosexuality in two types. Nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Barren people, sin. And such were some of you. But ye are, there it is, washed. Ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That is a summary of what baptism speaks about. Because who do, whose name do we get baptized into? Jesus' name. Name of Father, Son, and Spirit. You are baptized. And look what it says in verse 11. But ye are justified in the name of the Lord Kurios, the Master, Jesus Christ. And so what he's drawing together here is that the washing involves putting away past sins. I used to be this. I used to be that. But when I embraced Christ, when I was justified, when the Spirit indwelled me, I put away those old things. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about the functional change in your life. And that is the link to this text. There was a clear expectation in the early church that in baptism there was a moral turning, repentance. You joined actively the community of saints, the holy ones. And church discipline was a way of removing, purging, those who were callously unrepentant in their sins. They became blind and myopic because their lifestyle did not match their confession. You see how the practical comports with the spiritual. You hear what this means? This is so important. New choices of morality are not just suggested to us. They must be embraced. They must be pursued. Don't just take these as suggestions this morning. Matthew Henry said this. He says, by baptism, by washing, we are engaged now in a holy war against sin and are solemnly bound to fight against flesh, the world, and the devil. You know what has plagued Modern Christianity, so much. Cheap grace, 
cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about it when he talks in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. We are rampant in this culture with cheap Christianity. Oh, I believe in Jesus. How many have been caught up in the moment, walked the aisle, signed the card, been put under some sort of persuasion, maybe at catechism or from their parents, and they they said, I believe in Jesus, and their life didn't change. There was no purging from their old ways. They lived like devils. Doesn't James say the devils also believe? They shudder. They tremble at the ways of God. Is this you? Does this characterize you? You've said, I believe in Jesus, but there's no change in your life. The 17th century Dutch pastor, Wilhelmus Abrakel, he talks about what he calls sophisticated hypocrites. They look very good. They can instruct others in the ways of God and the things of religion. They have very insightful comments. Well, the Bible says this and that, and they think they have all these things. They have a lot in common with Christianity, but they lack true faith. There is no special work of the Spirit in their lives. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning. And uh, you're evaluating your life and you're realizing that your claims of Christ do not match your life in Christ. Remember what God asked Israel, hypocritical Israel. He says this, Can an Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? What's the answer to that? Can leopards suddenly Get rid of their spots. No. You know what he says next? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to evil. You see, we cannot change ourselves. We need something done within. And this morning, we must ask ourselves, is it then hopeless? Am I doomed? If I am that person who's been living for self, claiming to live for Christ, um, am I doomed? The answer has to be no. No, not yet, because God calls the sinner. He calls the wretched through the means of the preaching of the gospel and the word of God. He calls you to cast your eyes up to the heavens. That is the means by which his spirit works in the sinner's life. And he calls you, he commands you, he bids you, he compels you to come to him, to look to him. Stop looking across. We're so prone to look across. Look up to Christ. God says this, and this was Charles Spurgeon's conversion text. Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved, for I am God, and there is none else. The Bible promises that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called upon him? Are you seeking him? Are you ready to break, to repent, to be baptized, to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ? I have to close with one final point. Because in so many circles, obedience has been called legalism. You heard that? Well, you're just a legalist, if you believe that. That's a tragedy. You know what God calls obedience? Fruit. John writes... In 1 John 5, 3, he says, For this is the love of God. In other words, hereby prove you 
who have love for God. He says that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. They're not burdensome. They're not a chore. You want to obey God because you love him. And just in case we get tempted to say, well, look what I've done. Look what my obedience is bringing. Look at the fruits that I'm productively bringing to the kingdom. We have to remember what St. Augustine said so well. He says, if then your merits or your fruits are God's gifts, front-loaded in verses 1 through 4, if they're God's gifts, grace, he said, God does not crown your merits as your merits, but as his own gifts. Right? God is crowning his own gifts. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're downcast because of the sins you have committed this week, maybe even this morning. Believer, those who trust Christ, those who have made a break and continue to engage in this holy war against sin, look at Christ. Bearing fruit stems from Christ. Remember that, those prepositions, the sphere, the means, and the goal is all Christ Jesus. Marvel at the perfections of Christ. Study him, behold him, spend time in the word, looking at Christ. And remember this, bearing fruit honors God. There is no greater being that we can honor. Honoring man is futile when you can honor God. Is our holy God not worthy of our greatest love, our highest adoration, our highest praises, and the fruit of our lives. I'll close here with 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, further purging, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, I realize this is a sobering and yet amazing text. I pray that as we meditate on, our, on these things, that we may give ourselves wholly unto them, that we may further purge ourselves of sins and seek you, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.